Hello, and welcome back to the Upper Bowl GM Podcast. I am here on a stiflingly hot Sunday afternoon. I am sitting here in my room recording today's episode. I have pulled a washcloth out of the freezer to get through the next 30 minutes of this show. Because when you record on a hot day like this, you've got to turn off your air conditioning, your fans, because that kind of background noise is unpleasant for listeners. So we're trooping on through. This washcloth right now is still kind of cold, but... We're going to troop through. We're going to make a good episode here today, give you guys something good to start your Monday with. There were no episodes last week. I went to uh, Rangers-Penguins Game 7 Sunday night. Uh, I slept over a friend's house on a couch. I got like four and a half hours of sleep. I went to bed at 9 o'clock on Monday night. I was a zombie on Tuesday. Wednesday, I went to the Met game. I saw Max Scherzer get pulled. I watched the Rangers lose within the span of 30 seconds of each other. And then Thursday, we're supposed to record on someone else's show. They had something come up. So the content is coming. Don't worry. There Today, we'll have a show for you guys. Tomorrow, I'm supposed to go to the Yankee-Oriole game on Monday night. I hope the Orioles are kind to me and play Adley Rushman so I can see him play in person on Monday. I'll probably record an episode during the day before I head into the city for the game. But before we get to today's show, where we're mostly going to talk about the NHL playoffs, we'll touch a little bit on the NBA playoffs, on F1, NASCAR. We're, we're going to cover a lot of bases really quick today. Do got to remind everyone to help support the show. Number one, please, please, please subscribe to the show wherever you like to get your podcasts. The show is available on all of the major podcasting platforms. Number two, if you are using Apple's... Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave the show a review. On Apple Podcasts, once you hit that subscribe button, that plus sign in the top right corner, you're going to scroll down past our recent episodes. There's going to be five clear purple stars. Hit the one furthest to the right. Underneath that is a button with purple letters that says write a review. If you could be as so kind as to leave a few words, that would be terrific. Reviews really help the show out, so the more reviews we get, the better. Spotify, you have to listen to a few episodes before you're allowed to leave a review. You can cheese that. All you got to do, tap on an episode, hit the skip 15 seconds button three times. Do that three times. It'll let you leave a review. Okay, that's the preamble. I'll see you guys on the other side of the drop. Let's get to work. And with that, we are ready to get rolling. So I'll start with the Rangers in Carolina because that game just ended about 20, 30 minutes ago. I've got my notes. It's pretty fresh in my mind. I've got thoughts on how that series has developed so far. And we'll work from there. So first things first, I've been relatively impressed with the Rangers' commitment to playing defense in this series. They have tried their best to minimize the ability of Carolina to use their speed to generate offense, especially second-chance offense, which everybody knows is Carolina's bread and butter. The Hurricanes want to have their defense in, pinch up in the def- in the offensive zone, so then it becomes a four-forward, one, four one-defenseman-type situation, where since they have four guys down low, they're going to be more often than not winning those loose pucks. Which was the case for, I would say, the first 10 to 15 minutes of Game 1 on Sunday afternoon. And I wrote down in my notes, and I tweeted at one point during that first period, it felt like Carolina was playing 6-on-5 because they were getting to every single loose puck. But as the game went along, the Rangers slowly got into the mix. They started pushing on offense. I would like to see more offensively, a little bit more of a commitment to 
creating offense as opposed to trying to force offense, which has been an issue for the Rangers at times. Uh, going back to like the Elaine Vigneault era, the, the same culprits, you're never going to change how these guys are at this point in their respective careers. If you're 10 years into the NHL, you're not going to get somebody to dramatically alter their game, especially if they still have the same physical abilities. So I don't think you're ever going to be able to convince Chris Kreider or Mika Zibanejad or Artemi Panarin and Ryan Strom that they need to go below the goal line, win loose pucks, get it out to the point, and then play for rebounds and redirects. That's why the kid line has been the most effective line in this postseason they are keeping it very simple, straight line stuff, get the puck down low, try and get it to the net front. There were a few opportunities tonight in the game on Sunday where the Rangers had the puck below the goal line and there was enough space to skate the puck out into the front area there. Kreider scored his goal from that kind of play where he skated the puck out of below the goal line to above the goal line. He scored from a sharp angle, beat uh, Auntie Ranta to the far side from pretty close in, I'd say within 10 feet. And for the Rangers going forward in this series... They're going to need to score. Uh, You're not going to be able to win a lot of games only scoring two goals before the other team pulls their goalie. And today, Shosturkin was outstanding. Just no ifs, ands, or buts. 41 saves. Saved over three goals above expected in the game. Just outstanding work from the Rangers net miner again. The Hurricanes had a few golden opportunities. But for the most part, it... The Rangers did do a good job of keeping Carolina to the outside. It's funny. I had somebody text me with about seven minutes to go in the third period saying the Rangers give up too many shots. And that person wasn't wrong. But that's by design that the Rangers do that. The Rangers play a counterattack soccer style where they want to absorb pressure and go the other way off the counterattack, and that requires to keeping the other team to the outside, which for most of the third period, I would say they did a good job of playing the box-in-one defense where they had the two defensemen, two forwards collapsing down towards the net, and then whenever the puck was out high, the one skater, the box-and-one, would go out to pressure the puck carrier up there. But for the most part, I didn't mind the way the Rangers played on Sunday. I would have liked to see a little more of a concerted effort to generating offense, but that is about as good as you are going to get from this group in this series. And this is a formula that will work. If you give Shesterkin clean sight lines on pucks, he will save them a bulk of the time. Yes, the goal that Nino Niederreiter scored, that's a stinker. A backhand to the short side. Igor would tell you himself he should have had that. He squeezed his arm a little bit late. He flubbed it. It happens. Even good goalies make mistakes sometimes. That's just part of hockey. It's why that position is so difficult to play. So many variables go into playing goalie. Uh, Think about it like this. When you're driving, when is it most difficult to drive? When there's rain, when there's any type of precipitation, when there's a lot of cars on the road, when there's low visibility, when your tires are a little bit worn, all of those are variables. The more complicated something is, the more randomness that can occur because there's more inputs. Anytime you have a lot of inputs, that can increase the variability. And that's the easiest way for me to explain why goaltending is so weird. But overall... We have seen a reasonable game plan from the Rangers to give Carolina a hard time. Carolina is not playing as well as I thought they would in this series. I mean, the Rangers have only conceded 
four goals without their goalie pulled. That's not bad, like, at all. The Niederreiter goal, Carolina scored twice in Game 2 before the Rangers pulled their goalie. And then in Game 1, they scored twice before... I mean, that's reasonable. To only have conceded this many goals through three games, I would say the Rangers are doing a... I would say the Rangers theoretically are doing a good idea. I understand what the Rangers are trying to do defensively. They want to minimize those high danger chances, keep Carolina to the outside, clog shooting lanes, which is another thing they did really well in the third period of the game on Sunday, was when pucks were on that outside or at the point, somebody was in the shooting lane. So if, say, Tony D'Angelo was taking a shot from the point or Brady Shea was taking a shot from the point, the shot was getting blocked or Shesterkin had a clear sight line on it. That's how the Rangers need to play defensively. It's fine if they concede more total scoring chances. The Rangers can win with 45% of the scoring chances. It's a matter of the quality of the scoring chances. And that's always been how the Rangers have played. Basically, it since 2011-2012, that first year they really emerged as contenders. And that was, you know, a decade ago with an entirely different team. They want to minimize the high danger stuff, and then when they have the puck in the offensive zone, they are going to create dangerous plays with their high-end players. To understand this series, the way I want you to think about it, when the Rangers are in dire straits, when they are struggling offensively, what do they do? They get their high-end players to make plays. In Game 7 against Pittsburgh, when shit looked dire, it was Kreider, it was Zabinijad. In Game 6, same thing, Kreider and Zabinijad. Game 7, Panarin on the power play, even though his Game 7 wasn't particularly good prior to the overtime period. That's what we're talking about here. When the Rangers get into sticky situations where they start to struggle, they rely on their high-end players to make plays. They need somebody from their upper, their elite skill guys. They need a Zabinijad, a Panarin, a Fox, a Kreider to make a play to win them these type of close games. And that's the theory. That's the working theory. I wrote this in a blog for Gotham Sports Network before the season started. I said the Rangers would attempt to play this type of style where they're going to rely on their high-end players to make plays outside of structure because they're a rush-based offense. And today, the two Ranger goals without the empty net, one was a cycle play that only happens because they're on the power play and they're able to whip that cross-seam pass across from Panarin to Zabinijad. And Panarin did a great job there of baiting somebody to come out to him by skating into the play, which is something the Rangers need to encourage their guy at the point to do more, because when that person at the point skates in towards the net with the puck on their stick, that's going to bring a defensive player, a penalty killer, to them, and that's going to leave just three penalty killers down low to defend four Rangers, which is why the Rangers' power play was so good this year. That's the key. They have a numbers advantage and a condensed space. That is where the Rangers have been successful on the power play. And that was the no secret today to score there. And then to score the second goal, Kreider scores that goal coming out from down low. That is how the Rangers win this series. They need their Kreiders, their Foxes, their Zabinijads, their Panarins to make these plays in close games. 
They are not a well-structured team. They are not going to grind you into a pulp like Calgary, like Carolina. They are going to make those high-danger passes across the seam, trying to force one-timers, making one too many passes, all of the things that makes people angry on Twitter and the boomer old hockey writers angry. You're never going to get Mika Zibidijad to effectively play dump-and-chase hockey. You're not. You're not. He has the ability to do it. He just doesn't do it. So complaining about it is not going to change things. That That's something I think people need to understand. What the Rangers can encourage their high-end guys to do is to incorporate the D more. That is something I would like to see more in the offensive zone in terms of maintaining a cycle and working pressure. Because this was something I started doing with about four minutes to go. Excuse me. After four minutes in the first period. So about 15 minutes to go in the first I started keeping a tally of every time the Rangers entered the offensive zone, and I separated it into three categories. Zero scoring chances, one scoring chance, or more than one scoring chance. The Rangers entered the offensive zone 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44 times in the time I was keeping track manually. 44 times they entered the offensive zone. They created zone entries with more than one scoring chance eight times out of 41 attempts that they entered the offensive zone that's not gonna fly they're not doing enough to maintain zone time and the two times they did maintain prolonged zone time the power play where they scored and then that sequence where the puck got down low below the goal line Kreider was able to walk it out in front other than that, Rangers not doing a terrific job of working the game a little bit more. And that's something I want to see from them, because if they do that, they can get Carolina to take bad penalties. Carolina took the second most minor penalties in all of hockey during the regular season this year. And they have a good penalty kill, so they're they more often than not were fine. I mean, I think it was 88.5% of penalties they killed during the regular season, something like that. So this is a good penalty killing group, but... The Rangers have the capability of playing at Carolina's level. They have played, I would say, two of their three best games in the playoffs in this series so far. And that is really something to hang your hat on, I guess would be the expression I would use. I cannot complain. I came into this series after they won Game 7 saying, Make it competitive. If they don't win, as long as they don't get embarrassed, I'm not going to get bent out of shape. I'm not going to be angry if they lose to Carolina in six games, seven games. Because Carolina's good. Carolina had 110 points in the regular season. Carolina, I picked to win the Eastern Conference coming into the season. I thought Carolina was going to be a great team this year. And they were, for all intents and purposes. They score a lot. They have... Very good goaltending, and I haven't even mentioned Antti Ranta yet, who's been outstanding as somebody who with no playoff experience coming into this year at 32 years old. So that's another factor you got to consider here, that the Rangers are going against a goalie who's got a high ceiling. Uh, Ranger fans remember Antti Ranta as Henrik Lundqvist's backup, and he was a good backup on decent Rangers teams that weren't great, but Ranta was pretty good. So when you think the Rangers are going to be... In this series, I want to say they can make this interesting, okay? That's all I'm asking for here. I want the Rangers to make this series interesting. They make Carolina work. They make Carolina sweat a little bit. They force a game six, force a game seven. 
that's something you can be, okay, we can work with that going into next year. I do think the Rangers have some issues that they don't realize are issues, but this group this group is not on the same plane as, say, Colorado, Calgary, Florida, Tampa. This is a good team. This isn't a great team. But they're here. They're not getting embarrassed. They've had an opportunity to win in all three of these games against Carolina so far. And that's about as good as you can ask for this time of year, is a chance to win every game you play. That's all you can ask for. You can't expect to win every game you play. You can't even expect to win every other game you play. But if you have a chance to win every game, that is something you can work with and build off of going forward. So, the last thing I want to touch on in this series, before we start bouncing around, I really hope Panarin isn't playing through some god-awful injury, which is what I assume is the case, because he just hasn't been as dynamic as he usually is, and his mobility hasn't been as good as it usually is, and he's been slowing the play down a lot and allowing Carolina to use their speed to force the play where they want to force it, as opposed to Panarin dictating the play. I really hope Panarin isn't playing through anything too horrendous. Uh, Everybody is dinged up this time of year. I mean... God knows what injuries Ryan Lindgren has, what injuries Adam Fox has, what injuries Kreider has, what injuries a lot of these guys are playing. What Tyler Mott is playing through, who scored the empty net goal, which was nice to see Mott get rewarded. He's been one of the better Rangers in these playoffs, which is kind of an indictment of a lot of the team that somebody who was traded for to play fourth line minutes and kill penalties has been one of the best forwards in the playoffs. But he's moving his feet. He's engaged. I said it last week. I wrote it in my series preview for Rangers Carolina. The playoffs are won below the goal line and along the boards. You need guys like Tyler Mott who are going to be able to keep the puck moving. The Rangers need more of their guys in their top six to try to keep the puck moving. I'm not saying you got to go into the corners and win the puck against Jacob Slavin. I'm just saying instead of trying to force a pass, keep the puck moving. You don't have to shoot. Just keep the puck moving. Make progress. Every shift has to have purpose. Don't just get in the offensive zone, take a wrist shot from 40 feet away right at the goalie's chest, and that's the end of it. Because you know you're not good at faceoffs. So when you're settling for all of those low-danger chances, you know you're not going to be able to win a a majority of faceoffs to maintain offensive zone time. So that's a little bit frustrating, too. This is workable here. The Rangers will have opportunities to make plays going forward to give Carolina a hard time. And that's really all I want from the Rangers in this series. Give Carolina a hard time and keep it interesting. That's all I want. Excuse me as I take a big gulp of ice water here. So, next, I want to touch on Calgary and Edmonton, because that's been the most exciting play series of the postseason so far. Um, if you're a sicko, you might have enjoyed watching the Leafs capitulate again. But for me, that wasn't particularly appetizing. Watching Calgary and Edmonton have a war of attrition has been outstanding. Um, 22 goals through two games, I think, was the number. I, I, I could be wrong. My math isn't great, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but... A lot of scoring opportunities for both of these teams. A lot of opportunities to score. You got you got to remember Calgary is without um, 
without Tanev, their best defensive defenseman. That is a real issue. Connor McDavid is playing out of his goddamn mind. McDavid has, I think, 20 points through eight playoff games, nine playoff games, something like that. Just outrageous offensive production. Making outrageous just, like, fuck you plays. That's the only way you could describe them. Like when LeBron was on the heat and he would just back somebody down until he threw it down on them. That's the kind of shit. I mean, you saw the play the other night in game two where he bounced off of the six foot six, 230-pound Nikita Zadorov, and he just kept skating. He waited out Mike Smith. He waited for Mike Smith to make a move to try and poke him, and he just went around him and scored. I mean... There are not a lot of players on God's green earth who can do that. And McDavid's specialness is leaping off of the screen. And it's why I don't humor the Austin Matthews or Nathan McKinnon talk of being the best player in the world that, for some reason, the TV people like to do in the playoffs every year because the Oilers either haven't missed the playoffs or gone far in the playoffs the last couple of years. McDavid's better than both of those guys. McDavid is a one-man offense. He does not need anybody else to help him get things going offensively. The goaltending has been pretty mediocre. Jacob Markstrom is a Vesna finalist. He has not looked great. Granted, Edmonton is getting the puck to those high-danger areas, and they don't have uh, Chris Tanev, which is a problem. I mean, he is a very good defensive defenseman. Uh, Kyle Chillington, been a pleasant, pleasant breakout year from him. Noah Hannafin, been pretty good. What The the problem for the Flames is they still dress Zadorov. They still dress Good Branson. They have a lot of slow guys out there who aren't exactly the most fleet of foot. And when Edmonton gets them into a foot race, that's a real issue for them. So in terms of that series going forward, I'm recording before the third game, which is in Edmonton tonight, gets started. So I want the... F- I want to get a few things on the record. I think Calgary is going to prevail over the course of the series. We saw it in their first round series against Dallas that as the series went along, Calgary got a better understanding of what it was going to need to do to generate offense. They were creating a ton of zone time. They were pressuring Dallas. They were making Jake Ottinger stand on his head. They were playing some outstanding hockey, and they still had to go balls to the walls to a Game 7. And I would like to say I think Calgary should pull away over the course of this series just because of the talent gap, especially in the bottom six. But if McDavid is going to play like a Super Saiyan, there's not really much you can do about that. Um, there are very few players capable of playing at a level like McDavid is right now. And that's a real challenge for a team like Calgary, who is a sum-of-the-parts group. Yes, they have a few superstar-type players in Kachuk and Goudreau. And I would say Elias Lindholm is kind of in that category after scoring 40 goals this year. But Edmonton's high-end guy is the guy in this sport. So... Going forward in this series, you got to see if he can get Tanev back. And then number two, you got to just make Mike Smith make saves. It's very straightforward, but if you keep pressuring Mike Smith over time, he is going to make mistakes. Mike Smith is 40 years old. He is not as agile as he used to be. And frankly, he's just not as good as he used to be. So going forward, if you keep 
pressure on him. If you keep making him make mistakes, especially if you can find a way to get Matthew Kachuk going. I know Matthew Kachuk had a hat trick in game one, but he hasn't been as impactful in this series as he was during the regular season. Excuse me, in the Dallas. He was not as impactful in the Dallas series in the first round as he was during the regular season. So if they can find a way to get him going in conjunction with Goudreau, who's been outstanding. Uh, After McDavid, I would make a strong argument that Johnny Goudreau has been the best player in these playoffs because he is just, he is out there like a little jitterbug, constantly creating zone entries by himself, just bobbing and weaving through traffic, getting the puck to dangerous areas by himself, and then setting up his teammates in those dangerous areas to create offense. And Goudreau has been outstanding. You need your high-end players to play like high-end players. And that's some good shit, man. I'm very happy to see that. Johnny's going into his unrestricted free agency. He's going to be the most coveted player available this summer. He's going to get a massive payday. I hope he wins a cup in Calgary. I hope he stays in Calgary. I hope they keep that team together. Because it's a lot of fun to watch, man. There are a lot of guys on that team that are very fun to watch. And as these playoffs continue, you're going to need to see guys in your bottom six step up. And Calgary has the depth of a team necessary to win a Stanley Cup in a way that I don't think Edmonton does. Granted, if Edmonton is going to get Super Saiyan McDavid, he can produce offense for two lines. I know Dreisaitl is pretty dinged up. Uh, Newton Hopkins missed a couple games in the first series, so he's not 100%. They are going to find ways to score. Calgary's just got to score a little bit more. The Edmonton defense is porous. It is not fleet of foot. Calgary can use their dump and chase, low to high style of offense against that defense to great effect. It's why they scored nine goals in the first game. Uh, Keep pressuring them. These kinds of series are very fun. The silly goose ones where there's just no goaltending or defense because it makes for a viewing experience, a very entertaining viewing experience, especially if it's not one of your teams involved. If I was a Flames or an Oilers fan, I would be in absolute hell because it would be miserable. But just as a neutral, it's been very fun to watch. I, offense is entertaining. I know we have pushback about against this in football, in basketball, about high scoring not being the only way to play. But it's very fun to watch as a neutral observer with a lot of goals. It just makes for a lot more entertaining hockey than the Dallas-Calgary rock fight that was the first couple of games of that series before Jake Ottinger went Super Saiyan and the Flames still outscored Dallas. Now, the other series, Tampa's on. Tampa's just that group. The way I would describe what Tampa is now is what the Seahawks were like eight years ago, nine years ago, when they were going to the NFC title game every year. They're, they're the, the zombie from Evil Dead. You you break their legs off, they're crawling after you. You shoot them in the chest, they're still coming after you. You knock their head off, the head is going to keep biting, even though it's separate from the body. The Lightning do not die. The Lightning are up three games to none in that series. They don't have their best player in Braden Point. And you wouldn't know that they're missing their best player in Point because of how dominant they've been for prolonged stretches. I was texting with a couple of my friends during the first period of that game, and after Florida got it to 1-1, she said, okay, now we're actually going to get this. After the nastiness, after the Brandon Hagel cross-check got reduced from a major to a minor, Florida scored, made it 1-1. Then we started, okay, maybe we're going to get to see it. It opened up a little bit, and Tampa pulled away. Tampa won that game pretty convincingly, and now going home, up three games to none. Tampa wins this on... Monday, because they have to play a back-to-back. Shit's over. 
And then they get to sit for a week and get point healthy enough to play in the conference final against Carolina or the Rangers. And that is something Tampa is just, Tampa's got the institutional knowledge. All of the guys in that room, even if they haven't been on the team the last two years, if you're a new guy like, say, Corey Perry, they have the institutional knowledge of what it takes to play successful hockey this time of year. Ryan McDonough has had a very good playoffs. Victor Hedman has had a very good playoffs. Eric Chernak has been pretty good for them in long stretches. I never thought I would think Eric Chernak was a good defenseman, but watching him for so much these playoffs, I've been very impressed with his game. Uh, Ross Colton, they, they are just a machine. There is no other way to describe it. And if you are a Florida group that... If you are a Florida group that is struggling to get past this one team consistently, that is a mental struggle that you have to be able to overcome. It is a challenge. It is frustrating. Think of what Washington went through playing Pittsburgh in the postseason all of those years in a row, never really beating them until the year Washington won the Stanley Cup. That is a real mental hurdle you have to overcome. And maybe that makes you reevaluate the bones of your team and say, okay, we have a good group, but we need to figure out how we need to support that group. Think about what Tampa did going to get Blake Coleman and bringing up Yanni Gord, who they draft, they signed as an undrafted free agent from the Quebec Major Junior League, trading for Barkley Goodrow and saying, okay, now we have a line that no matter what, if we put them out there against the other team's best line, that that team's best line is not going to generate a ton of offense, and that's going to open up our top six chances of creating offense successfully. That is something you can say, okay, we need to retool this. We need to rework this. That's what I'm always trying to think about when it comes to teams that lose in the playoffs is, okay, what's working, what's not working, where do we go from here? In the case of Florida, you know what you are. You've got a couple of really good players in Barkov and Huberdo and Ekblad, Verhage, Mackenzie Weger. You got to figure out goaltending because Bob has still Bob's overpaid, and that's an issue. When you overpay your goalie, that makes the rest of your roster worse because all the money you have tied up in a goalie could be going to roster players, and roster players are more likely than not more important than goalies. Excuse me, taking another gulp of water there. It's hot. But it is hard to win with an expensive goalie. You see the Lightning, or maybe the exception to that rule, because you've had the Lightning, you had Bennington on a rookie contract. SLS had gotten his pay raise after the first Lightning Cup. Bennington, rookie contract. Holtby, expensive. I'll be fair. Holtby, I think, was $7 million-ish, $7.5 million-ish as the Capitals' starting goaltender. Pittsburgh, Matt Murray, not expensive. Before that... Corey Crawford, moderately expensive, I would say. I think Corey Crawford's making six and a half million dollars a year, something like that. Maybe five and a half million, somewhere middle of the market. 2014, the Kings, quick, six something million. 13, the um, the Blackhawks, Crawford again, same deal in that five and a half to six million dollar range. That's your sweet spot for goalie costs. And I know the salary cap has increased since then, but you need those roster players. Those roster players are more important. And just being frank with you, unless you have somebody of Vasilevsky's ilk who is going to be able to steal you one game per playoff series every single year, you probably shouldn't have that much money tied up in the position, just speaking frankly. As great as Henrik Lundqvist was, 
He could not win a 0-0 hockey game. And that is the thing hockey executives sometimes don't think about is the Rangers... I instinctively went to say the Rangers because I've been bitching about this with the Rangers basically my entire life. It is impossible to win a hockey game 0-0. If you had a literal brick wall in your crease in front of your net mouth, you still could not win the hockey game 0-0. It is impossible. Eventually, you are going to need to be able to score. And it's why I've always advocated that it's more important to have an offense that's high-end than a defense that's high-end because you can't win a hockey game 0-0. Now, thinking about this team going forward, Florida, they put a lot of chips in the middle. They traded a first-round pick. They traded Owen Tippett for Claude Giroux. They traded for Ben Chirot. They made a real effort to engage their fans, to entice them to continue spending money on the team, which in turn, you know, for a team like Florida that is going to need, you know, more money in its coffer to be engaged with these high-end players who are going to need extensions, you got to have a full house. And Florida's done that. Florida, especially in these playoffs, very loud crowd, entertained, full crowd, which is a good sign. If Florida is going to continue to draw large crowds, that's a good sign going forward. That ownership group will continue to put money into the team, and that's what you need to see if you are a fan of a team like Florida. We will probably have a post-mortem type deal for a lot of these limited playoff teams going forward when I can recount with some of my friends who've been on the show earlier in the season to talk about where their team was at going into the playoffs to kind of talk about what went wrong, where they go from here, things like that, because... I wasn't, I thought, just speaking frankly, I picked Toronto to beat Tampa Bay in that first round series. I thought Toronto would beat uh, Florida in this second round series. And I thought the conference final would be Carolina-Toronto. It's going to be Tampa-Carolina probably, and that will be a very good series. But Florida, it's hard to win playing Offense first hockey. It's hard to win playing defense first hockey. And right now, Carolina is just, excuse me, Carolina. Florida's not scoring enough. They have one goal per game in all of these games so far. They are not creating enough offense. Their power play looks broken beyond belief, which is insane. For a group that has that many talented players in it, I mean, you think about Barkov and Huberto and Claude Giroux, that group should be constantly, constantly putting the puck in the back of the net with a five-on-four advantage. And then the last series to touch on in the hockey playoff before we get to the NBA, the nasty one, man. Colorado and St. Louis, those teams don't like each other to begin with. They've got some volatile personalities. Okay, let's start with the basics. I didn't think the Kadri hit on Bennington was intentional. I thought Kadri got pushed in. Based on where the play was going, I thought it was an accident. And Jordan Bennington obviously doesn't feel that way. He threw something at Kadri during the post-game interview the other day. That's not a very good look for St. Louis. I would love to say cooler heads will prevail, but the NHL doesn't seem like it's going to even, like, fine Jordan Bennington, which is the only thing they could do, really, because he's not going to play the rest of the playoffs. So you suspend him for the first two games of next season, and then we have to have this discourse again in a couple of months. That doesn't really solve the problem. You should. I wish the NHL would crack down on shit like this, man. 
I understand Nazem Kadri has not done himself any favors in the NHL that he has continually been in these kinds of situations because he's constantly towing that line. That doesn't mean you disrespect him and throw shit at him during a TV interview. Come on. Grow up. That's the thing, man. There are tough guys and there are fake tough guys. Jordan Bennington is a fake tough guy. Everybody remembers back in the fall when he swung a stick close to Kadri's head. Not... Close enough where it was dangerous, but close enough to say, hey, man, fuck you, in a way that you really shouldn't be doing if you're a professional athlete, because you're supposed to have respect for the other people within your sport. I'm not saying you got to be buddy-buddy. I'm not saying it has to be like the NBA, where you go to Cancun with everybody on the other teams. I am saying you need to have respect for other people on the ice as to not injure them intentionally. If accidents happen, that's part of sports, especially a contact sport like hockey. People are going to get hurt. That is part of hockey, unfortunately. Be respectful. Don't be doing shit like Jordan Bennington, man. I'm not asking for the moon here. You want to cross-check, face wash, throw punches after the whistle, fine. But let's keep a, a sense of decorum in the game. That's the one thing I've never understood about people like Jordan Bennington. If you're going to act like a jackass and people are... And ask back to you. You don't get a. You don't have a right to be pissy, man. Let Let's just be honest here. It, it's. It is embarrassing that Bennington carries on like this, and the NHL just lets him do it because they just don't seem to care about things like the quality of the game, which is mind-boggling to me. But I, I digress. I digress. That series has taken a nasty turn. I do expect Colorado, who lost Sam Girard in that game on a really nasty hit by Ivan Barbashev. I expect Colorado to pull away in that series at some point. The Blues are a decent team, but Colorado's got too much talent. I I, I think Colorado in six is a reasonable expectation there. And that is the four NHL playoff series. So real quick. We'll touch base on the two NBA series. I'll talk about the Mets for a minute. We'll talk NASCAR Formula One, too. But Mavericks got to get Lucas some help. Jalen Brunson's a nice piece. They've got a bunch of nice rotation guys. They need another. They need a true 1B to play off of Luka, who can drop 25 to 30 points in on the ledger so that Luka doesn't have to score 50. Because when Luka's scoring 50 like that, it's usually going to be pretty efficiently if he's taking that many scoring chances. If he's taking that many shots to create that many points, it's just hard to score 50 points in an efficient way, especially as the primary scorer for a team when you're not a true spot-up shooter like Clay or Steph, who if they're just standing in the corner and catch a loose ball and they hit 12 threes, that's within reason. Luke is working hard for his offense, and teams have been making him work hard on defense. Empty out that gas tank, and he just doesn't have the motor to play both ends at a high level. And that's upsetting. That's disappointing. Uh, I wish to say that the Mavericks could, you know, hang around here. And I think they can probably win one more game. But I expect I expect Golden State to win that series in six games. As for Boston-Miami, that series has been weird as hell. Um, game one, Miami murdered Boston. Game two, Boston came out, played good defense, made Miami work hard, didn't win. Game three in Boston, Miami just beat the shit out of them. Uh, the Celtics couldn't make an open three to save their life. I can't even... They missed so many open threes in the first half that it was like a 30-point game at one point. And, yeah, they got it within, I think, eight when Marcus Smart came out of the locker room hobbling, hit that one three. I think they got it to within eight, maybe nine at that point in the game. But 
I never really felt like the Celtics had enough there. And that's one of the weird things about Jason Tatum as Boston's number one guy is he has games where he looks like the second coming of Kobe Bryant. And then he has games where he has nine points on 13 or 15 field goal attempts. And that's just not going to cut it as the number one guy on a team with NBA title aspirations. Miami is always going to be a greater-than-the-sum-of-its-parts team because of the way they're assembled. When you have that much money committed to a defense-first guy like Bam Adebayo, like Jimmy Butler, who's not a great shooter, more of a finisher and defense guy, you're never really going to be able to blow other teams away, but you're going to have to have the good defensive efforts. You're going to need Harrow and Duncan Robinson off the bench giving you something. That little bit of offense, that helps. But I would say... I lean Miami based on how the first three games have gone, but I think Boston more than enough talent to make that a series. I think if Robert Williams, Boston's center, is healthy, I think that would go a long way in swinging the series back in Boston's direction. And But for now, I would lean Miami there. Okay, real quick. We'll talk. Cars going fast. The race in Spain was very boring on Sunday morning. Uh, it was, you know... Charles Leclerc's car shitting the bed on him, disappointing, Max winning by like 10 seconds. Good to see Mercedes making things interesting. They showed some decent race pace today. George Russell finished fourth. That was encouraging. Lewis Hamilton finished, I think, fifth. Encouraging to see Mercedes closer to the pace, especially during qualifying and on practice. They have more straight line speed, which has been a problem for them. That car had been bouncing all over the place on straights because of the new regulations. They had to change the undercarriage of the car, so it was bouncing weird, creating more resistance, so it wasn't able to go as fast on straightaways. They seem to have rectified that for at least one week. Next week, Monaco is the biggest event in the net, in the F1 calendar. That's the equivalent of the Daytona 500, the Super Bowl. That That's the marquee event in the sport. It's the oldest race on the circuit, I believe. I think. I believe it is the oldest continuously run race because other circuits have been modified over time. Not to say that Monaco hasn't. They have changed it over time, but... Monaco is the premier event. That's the yachts. That's Monaco, you know, Monte Carlo, the really expensive country that only exists as a tax haven for rich people to hide their money and for Formula One drivers. Those are really the only two types of people who live in the south of France like that. So that'll be very exciting. If you are a newer F1 consumer, like I know a lot of people are who've been dabbling in Drive to Survive, the race itself is not very exciting because there are no opportunities to pass, really. So qualifying is of the utmost importance. You really have to have a good qualifying session because you're going to more or less finish where you start unless you have durability issues with your car. So that's that. Oh, and if the Mets keep scoring runs, they're going to be fine, but I don't know how long they're going to keep scoring runs because everybody in the offense has been good at one time, so I expect all of them to go cold at one time. I'm not very... The next month's going to suck, man. The Mets have a brutal schedule in the month of June. They have a trip to California to play the three California teams, the Brewers. I believe they play the Angels as well. A brutal month of June. Without Max Scherzer, without Jacob deGrom, without James McCann. I never thought I'd be lamenting the loss of James McCann. Without Trevor May, without Sean Reed Foley. I never thought I'd be lamenting the loss of Sean Reed Foley. But the Mets don't have bodies. I mean, they used Adam Adovino two out of the three days on the weekend because they played a doubleheader on Saturday. 
they're going to need another arm in that bullpen and sooner rather than later because Adovino is basically the only high leverage reliever they have right now aside from Edwin Diaz. And that's just not going to work. It's not. You need to have more than one middle relief guy you can trust, and the Mets don't have that right now. The Yankees are rolling. They have the best record in baseball. Chad Green, UCL surgery, that's tough, but the Yankee bullpen is still four or five arms deep. Might be last call for Aroldis Chapman as Yankee closer. He blew the save in the first game of the Sunday doubleheader. I'm curious to see if the Yankees will have the gumption or the resolve to put Michael King or Clay Holmes in that spot as the closer, even though those are younger guys who don't get paid as much as Chapman. Okay, 44 minutes, not too bad. I am dying of heat stroke during the course of this episode i had to put the washcloth that was around my neck in the freezer that was in my room twice both times it has gotten room temperature warm in about five ten minutes not doing a ton to keep me cool but 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 we persist in these conditions because it's been too long since i've done an episode very very glad to be back in the mix i will be at the yankee game on monday i hope to see adley rushman I will probably do a baseball episode during the day on Monday because I got to get content out there more regularly. That will do it for today's show. I hope you had a good one. Enjoy your Monday.